Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District by Horizon Capital, where we partner with B2B SaaS companies and help them scale with both capital and our growth marketing playbook. This episode is also sponsored by our partners at Build, a startup development studio that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable revenue generating software businesses. Product development is often a challenge for non-technical founders who don't have a tech person internally. That's where Build comes in. They help founders build and launch their MVPs, test the market, and find product market fit. For 15K and roughly a month's work, Build will get your validated product up and out. We've all been burnt by the companies that promised this for years. But Build is focused on finding product market fit and will do that by keeping you away from the feature creep and escalating costs that do most initial products. They keep costs low with the block structure, but more importantly, they have already built great products on scope and on time for founders. Companies they've worked with have generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, gotten into Y Combinator, or raised money at eight-figure valuations. If you have an idea and want to see it come to life as a product, head over to build.com. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com today. In today's episode, we'll be talking about net dollar retention, the one metric SaaS company should focus on. Today, we have our guest, Faraz Rashid, joining us. Faraz is the CEO and founder of Hook, a predictive data platform that empowers customer success teams. Hook is also transforming B2B SaaS by providing accurate revenue predictions and intelligent, actionable insights to secure more customer renewals. Faraz founded Hook in late 2020 and has already raised millions in funding from some of the top investors and company founders across Europe. He's passionate about changing the way customer success teams operate which we'll go deeper into today's episode. So welcome for us. Super excited to have you on the SaaS District show today. Thanks, Akil. Great, uh, great to be on. So I want, I want to start with the basics. You know, I always like to get, you know, easy for, the, for people to ease into kind of the, what we're going to talk about. But you know, it's all about customer success and, and the importance of it. Um, so if we can help, you know, help our audience understand the customer success when it comes to SaaS companies specifically, uh, can you explain how, you know, Hook works specifically with being able to quantify you know, customer success back to the impact uh, of the teams, back to to revenue, which is the most important part when it comes to you know SaaS. Yeah, let me. Um, I'll start with the the kind of topic that you opened up on, which is net dollar retention and sure. and and how how the world has changed, um, and then we can talk a little bit around how Hook can help. So, I guess the starting point is um, the way that SaaS software is perceived by investors and buyers has fundamentally shifted. So. We look back at 2016, there was $50 billion of SaaS revenue. This year, there's $150 billion. In three years' time, that's going to go to $300 billion uh, in terms of SaaS recurring um, annual revenue. And the second shift that's happened in that time is net retention has suddenly become the most important factor for how companies are valued. Um, so if you go and look at the public and private markets today, if you have um, the top end of a net retention number of, say, 180% like Snowflake, you get a valuation that's 200 times your revenue number. If you're at 100%, you get a valuation that's 10 times your revenue number. Um, and this has shifted from a world where five years ago, no one really cared. Uh, it was the sixth or seventh thing um, that came up that a VC asked you about in your sixth or seventh meeting. Today, it's in your first meeting um, at Series A, it's something you'll get asked about. So fundamentally, this shift has happened. And um, what we do is in Hook is, we help customers understand um, how user behavior within their product, how their engagement with customers affects their net dollar retention and what they need to do to go and increase it. 
And this came from the background that I had of running customer success at scale at AppDynamics. So I um, helped scale AppDynamics from $170 million in ARR up to $550 million in ARR. And during that journey, kind of discovered this huge gaping challenge that we had in understanding how we use data to, to drive growth. Mm, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, at, at Horizon Capital, that's exactly what we look at. So net re- dollar retention is one thing when we're doing acquisitions. And then you know, growth is obviously the, the other one uh, that, that's important. Um, now, does it also, does it only impact when it comes to, you know, um, you know re- uh, customer renewals and churn reduction? You know, now that these are paying customers or does it also help in predicting, um, you know, freemium users and, and kind of trying to get them to convert to paid, right? Because they're getting into the app now. Is there, is there a function you can use that for? Yeah, good question. Um, it's something we have customers that use it for, but it's not really the place where we where we focus on. Um, I personally am very passionate around uh, customer retention and customer growth. Mm. I think that it's an area of the industry that's hugely underserved. Um, and I think you only need to kind of open the door on the world of customer acquisition um, software to see that it's an area that is plentiful um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of what you can look at. So yeah, what we help customers with is how do you avoid churn um, and how do you retain customers better? But also, how do you go and find opportunities for upsells? So our machine learning platform looks at the behaviors and compares them against existing customers to say, these customers look like they're ready to spend more money. And, and that's really where we help with that revenue growth as well as uh, as well as well retention. Makes sense. Yeah, those, those are super key, you know, huge, huge fields that can be tackled just with, with those uh yeah, that alone. So, um, you know, when it comes to customer success, you know, people try to maybe, maybe new in the field or as a SaaS founder, um, trying to understand the differentiation between customer success and customer support. Um, so, if I'm a, I'm a SaaS founder and I'm thinking to start, you know, building out this part of my team and organization, how can can you can help you know differentiate and understanding the difference between those two departments? Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a trick question uh, in some ways because. In the earliest days of founding a company, there probably isn't a difference. Um, so in, in your in your seed stage, series A stage companies, um, your customer success person is probably going to be the customer support person, the onboarding person, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, as you begin to grow, uh, I think what's really important to look at is what is the fundamental definition of customer success? Uh, and I think people tend to get a bit lost here and uh, almost get stuck in the trap of thinking, it's got to be unique for each company. Um, but for me, I, I think the, the universal definition of customer success is what is the gap between a product that someone's bought and what they need to do in order to get value from it? And, and that is the piece that a customer success organization owns. Um, I think alternatively, the customer support organization owns what are the problems that we need to fix that are within our product that um, will enable a customer to be able to go and do their job. And you can see those functions as a um, customer success organization is proactive. They will speak to customers um, if they, even if they do not raise uh, questions. Um, so if a customer, and actually I think customer success people should be most engaged with customers that aren't speaking to them. And customer support organizations will typically be responsible for receiving queries where a customer may have questions around how do I utilize this product? Um, how do I enable this feature? What are the reasons that I'm getting this error? So yeah, I'd really say in the early days, they're probably the same function, maybe even the same person. As you start to grow, the way that they split is customer success is proactive on engaging with customers. Customer support is reactive on, on engaging with customers. Makes sense. I like that analogy. So proactive versus reactive and how you, you're reaching out and, and communicate with the customers. Um, now, when it comes to, to 
you know, measurements, because I mean, that's the whole thing. We're looking at data, we're looking at metrics, we're tracking all this stuff, because that's obviously what, what makes the difference here. What are the key measurements and metrics that we should be paying attention to? Um, you know, things that come to mind, like NPS scores, uh, you're running, you know, heat maps and understanding, you know, product usage. Um, but then, you know, how often should we should we be tracking them? And what's your thoughts on what else we should be tracking? Yeah, that's um, uh, it's a great question. And um, I think... The most important thing I will say to people on this is if you're starting, um, keep it simple. Um, and I'll, I'll talk through the first time that I started to look at, at, at metrics for um, customer success. Um, so I think if we start at the point, which is the ultimate goal is for a customer success organization to contribute towards their company's net revenue retention. Mm -hmm. And I think what people need to figure out in their organization is, what are the leading indicators of that number? Um, now, I have a, a very strong view that NPS is, is a very bad metric for customer success because what NPS gives you is, does this particular user like the um, product that they're using and would they recommend it to, to a friend? Mm -hmm. That is entirely different from, is someone getting value from a product and does a product have stickiness within an organization? Um, and often, for example, in the B2B space, I think plenty of us know software programs which we use every day but don't particularly like because they do the job that, they, that they're there to do. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I would say that the challenge with MPS is, is it's a sentiment-based metric and it won't necessarily give you um, a, an indicator of, of whether or not that um, someone will drive additional revenue of whether or not someone's going to spend, um, spend uh, more money. Um, in actual fact, in the work that we did at my last company at AppDynamics, we ended up spending several million dollars on building um, predictive machine learning algorithms to understand uh, what causes a customer to uh, renew, to spend more money and not. And what we found was in every single sentiment metric we looked at, there was no correlation. And in every metric that we looked at around engagement, including things like, um, are they using our product? Um, are they uh, engaging with us by attending marketing events? Mm -hmm. Are they buying services offers? Uh, are they speaking to our salespeople? Every single one of those had a direct correlation with retention and, and upselling accounts. Um, so I would say ignore sentiment, focus on customer engagement. But in terms of keeping it simple, I think where people get confused about that is how do I get to the point where I've got a whole bunch of data points that give me the right answer. And actually, I would say that the starting point should be start to look at one or two data points and look at them in the most simplistic way. Um, back at AppDynamics, the first thing that we did was we manually pulled out a list of all of the deals that had ever churned or renewed. We manually pulled out a list of um, what were the adoption rates of the, the piece of software uh, that they'd bought at the point of uh, renewal and what we found was in, in Excel, through an Excel chart, was that um, the average customer who renewed was at 57% adoption. The average customer that churned was at 29% adoption. And that gave us our first metric that we sat down and said, that's what we're going to focus the customer success team on. So I think the starting point should be um, start with something simple, start with something that you've got access to. Don't worry too much about overcomplicating it and, and start to iterate on that. And um uh, the the thing that we did at AppDynamics as well was by picking adoption, we ended up picking a metric that only the customer success team owned and nobody else owned. So mm -hmm. that gave us not only 
the accountability, but it also gave us the recognition when things went well with adoption because it wasn't owned by a salesperson and it wasn't owned by a renewals person and, and so on. And, and sorry, and just to add to that, how, how often should you be be tracking that? And is there, you know, rather, you know, so spreadsheets is one way, you know, kind of doing it manually. Is there any maybe tools or softwares that, you know, other than, you know, hook maybe on a, on a, on a you know, isolated piece that we should be looking at or, or consider? Yeah, I think realistically, I think this should be something that um, that you get into the cadence of looking at every day. Um, so I think the starting point is saying, come up with the metrics that that matter. I think the next piece is saying, this should be the thing that you open up and say, what are those metrics looking like today? And how have they changed over the last, the last day, week, month, and so on? Because what you're really looking for is, where does that trend not look right? Where does that trend not going up? When is that trend starting to go down or, or starting to stall? Um, so typically, uh, the type of customers that we'll work with will use something like Hook to log in and, and, and look at their work day to day. Um, I think it, and the first experience we had of this in my career was looking at dashboarding um, uh, this. So looking at a, a, a dashboard that was built in a BI tool that started to give live live views of that information. And, and I think that that's, that's where you really want to head towards if you um, if you decide to kind of find a stopgap before you move into a into a platform like ours. Mm, got it. Um, okay, so you're looking at this, you know, every day, and then you know now we're we're trying to tie that back to to churn, which is on kind of the end of the day. So you're looking at this, you're seeing, you know, uh, looking at product users, customer engagement, um, and then you know tying that back to revenue. Uh, how do these metrics, you know, help prevent customers from churning? If you can kind of go into more detail. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good question. What you're really looking for is um, where are the accounts that aren't doing that well? Like what's the bottom 20 to 30%? So um, typically the easiest thing to do as a customer success person is to focus on the customers that you speak to every day um, because you have a relationship with them, because they're coming to you, uh, because they're using your product and they understand what they're trying to achieve. Really where you start need to start focusing your time is how do you get in with the customers that have disengaged, that are starting to reduce in, in utilization? Maybe the champion's left. Maybe the new person that's come in actually doesn't like your product and knows a competing one. And what those data points will help you do is understand which those accounts are three, six, nine months out from renewal time. Rather than you come up to renewal time, you call up the customer, and actually it turns out they haven't used the product for six months and the, and the champion left a while ago and you need to resell the value. So what they'll help you do is to get ahead of the problem way, way, way before anything um, comes up in terms of renewal conversation, which really should help that renewal conversation become more transactional than a, than a, a, a sales conversation. Got it. So, you know, we're three, six, nine months ahead, you know, before renewal, we're measuring, we're tracking, we're understanding which customers will be, we should be focusing, you know, more attention on, which is at the bottom 20, 30% in terms of usage and engagement. Um, what are we doing at this stage? What are the actions we're taking? Are we, are we just, you know, calling them and just reminding them? Are we just sending them some some educational pieces? What, what does that look like to, to kind of get them back and excited about the tool? Yeah, great question. I think this really comes down into what the, like, what is it that you're seeing in the product data that isn't right? Um, so uh, let's, we, let's look at a couple of examples. If sure. we look at something like um, adoptions decrease, we haven't got there with adoption, um, we found, and I found in the past in my uh, in my previous career that um, gamifying and incentivizing adoption is is a great way to get people to start to using the product. Um, I actually remember back in uh, App Dynamics, we used to have uh, contracts worth millions that we would sell into banks and airlines, 
And um, the hardest bit of the product was how do you get people to change their behavior so that they use a new way of doing stuff rather than their, their old way? Um, and we started to use this way where we would, we'd walk in with a, with a set of AirPods and we'd say, the person that builds the best dashboard in App Dynamics in the next three weeks wins a set of AirPods. Um, and all of a sudden, you would end up with a company that had spent $10 million on a piece of software, aren't really getting value, aren't using it. Within a couple of weeks, you've got 70 people across the organization that are glued to it because there's now a competitive dynamic that's starting to get people to look at it. Hmm. Um, another example is uh, we, when uh, within Hook, when our product look, uh, when our uh, platform looks at product data, we differentiate between different levels of users. And what we actually find is with certain products, the seniority of a user affects how other people start to use a product. Uh, mm -hmm. We call that an influencer. So who is a buying personality that's also using a product? And we have examples of customers where it, you know, it, it, it's almost the strongest correlation between um, wider usage and, and wider renewal. And there, um, what we encourage customers to do is really spend time on getting in and selling the value to that one person, to that influencer, because the moment they start using the product, it cascades across their organization. Um, you're going to use the product if your boss is going to ask you what you're doing within, within that platform. Mm. So you talk about incentives. Maybe we can chat about that for a second, which is, you know, you have a customer success, success team. You know, they have these lists of, you know, uh, customers that they're focused on. And, you know, their goal at the end of the day is to, you know, one is to reduce churn, uh, drive ex and then obviously you know, upsell. Do you? Um, how do you suggest structuring maybe some incentives? Is this something like okay, if you renew them, uh, you know, there's some dollar bonus. Uh, if you upsell them, you get some bonus. Uh, I'm just trying to think. You know, as, as a SaaS founder, maybe you have a success team. You're just paying them a flat rate. Maybe these little incentives are are going to get them more uh, proactive, a little bit more, and pay a little more attention to those you know bottom customers and think about ways and, and get creative to get them uh, to renew. Yeah, um, it's actually one of the questions I get asked the most by by people, which is how do I how do I measure my team and and what is it that I should pay with them on? Um, I'm not a big fan of paying people on uh, renewals uh, itself because I think that it's a bit of a trailing indicator. Um, what you're really doing is saying we're going to pay you in this one month based upon everything that happened in the last twelve months which probably also includes things that had happened before you were around. Mm. Uh, and I also, um, I, I've seen occasions where it encourages the wrong behavior because what you're focused on is rescuing accounts rather than delivering value. Um, I, I think if you can, I think the best metrics to pay people on are if you can find something that is a leading indicator into that renewal. Um, for example, at Dynamics, we found that adoption was the big one. Um, in our own customer base, we actually have customers that pay people on increases in our engagement score, which is our machine learned renewal prediction. And um, if you can find ways that those metrics, which are leading indicators and which aren't owned by anyone else in the organization, I think that's the way that you're going to firstly have um, customer success teams uh, motivated and inspired to, um, to add value to their accounts because they know, for example, if they increase adoption and that drives an increase in in the customer's engagement score, um, then uh, then that was down to them. And the uh, the second thing that it does is if someone else doesn't own that metric in the company, then it gives the customer success team a lot of empowerment because salespeople are clear on exactly what contribution customer success has made to an account. Renewals teams are clear if, for example, there's a separate one. 
Um, and we found that um, at my last job at AppDynamics as well. As soon as we owned the adoption number, mm. everybody immediately knew what we did and why we did it and how that correlated with uh, with revenue. Got it. So, so an example of like an adoption number, uh, let's say you're an email marketing tool. Um, it's not of like, you know, getting the renewal of, in terms of dollar amount. It's like, you know, how many... How many emails are being sent? How often? Would that be a kind of number that you, you'd look as like, okay, they're, they're sending zero. How do we get them to start sending their first campaign? And if you get all these users, you know, dollar, you know, then you, you still incentivize them with, uh, with dollars? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I would say that um, your goal is to uplift, uh, you know, um, uh, for example, if you're an email marketing campaign system that mm-hmm. is a user-based license, mm-hmm. um, I would say that the goal needs to be that you drive 70 to 80% utilization within user-based licenses. Um, and in addition to that, within those user-based licenses, you've got active utilization, i.e., you know, a certain set of those is driving a certain number of campaigns um, across those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would make the assumption that um, that, that utilization is going to um, uh, increase the number of seats that they have and also will decrease the likelihood of them mm-hmm. uh, of them renewing. And I think the power in doing that is the customer success team now owns a number that only they own, mm. which is they've got the adoption number for that customer and the sales team and other teams know that if that adoption number goes well, advocacy goes well, uh, upsells go well, and so on and so forth. Mm. Like it. I love it. Um, any any tips or suggestions on maybe on the hiring part? Because you know, I think customer success roles are a little bit different than you know, traditional, you know, support roles, maybe I, I would think, because, uh, you know, there's a, it's, it's kind of like a hybrid of sales and then also, you know, good customer service, right? That's how I kind of look at it. But, um, you know, what, what, are, what are you looking for in terms of experience and traits? Uh, what's the right, what's the right profile for that role? Yeah, uh, this is another one of the questions that I get asked the most, uh, the most often. Um, I, uh, the first customer success hire that I ever made took me 90 uh, interviews to find. Uh, and it was the 91st person I interviewed. <laughs> and um, the, the challenge that's happening right now is there's this shift towards NRR being uh, the most important metric. There's a secondary shift, therefore, of customer success has suddenly grown rapidly in importance in the last you know, two to four years, mm-hmm. which fundamentally means that um, it, it, if those two things are happening, it's impossible for there to be sufficient great CSMs out there for you to hire for every role that's open. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I discovered through the process of, of hiring the first person. And um, what, what I found was it was actually more important for the person that you're hiring to have domain expertise in the product that you're selling than it is for them to have any experience in customer success. Really, um, And the reason for that is you can teach someone how to do customer success, i.e. how do you deliver value using your product to a, to a customer. What you can't do is uh, teach someone how your customer does their job. Um, and the, the example that I had was with AppDynamics, we had a very technical product that was used by IT operators. And someone that came from a non-technical background actually found it really difficult to empathize with our customer and to understand what they were trying to do, which was try and bug fix problems that were happening on, on our product. So we shifted into hiring people that came from IT operations backgrounds that were um, that were also a little bit more outgoing and a little bit salesier, as you said. And we found that talent within sales engineers and, and within consultants. Um, but yeah, my recommendation would be don't focus too much on the CSMs. You can teach it. Focus specifically on um, who are the people that understand what your customer's trying to do and can help them do it. Because 
ultimately, if you think about it, your platform is only a software product that is a vehicle to deliver business change. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 that, the most important bit is what is that business change and how do people enable to do it? Um, I actually see it in, in our, our most successful customers, um, the, the, the best CS teams. They brought people in that actually really understand that, that business problem. I wonder if that, that kind of translates over to sales teams as well, right? I mean, if you're, I mean, you're hiring a salesperson, do you want somebody who's like, you know, understands predictive, you know, who ideally, you know, they have sales experience and they've done sales in, uh, you know, churn reduction and, you know, predict, predictive analysis and intelligence. Uh, but if they have experience, you know, great sales and, you know, let's say enterprise level sales, but they sold, I don't know, you know, to, 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 to machinery or, or, or other kind of, uh, you know, equipment. Uh, but then, you know, they have the skills, but they just don't understand, um, you know, churn reduction in the SaaS world as much. I would think you can, you can kind of, work, uh, you know, train them on that part a little easier because they have the, you know, they understand the process and the systems of how to, you know, navigate those conversations and talk to customers. Or am I wrong? Yeah, I think, I think on the sales side, the industry experience and the verticals of your customers makes a big difference. Mm. Um, I spent the first eight years of my career running IT operations at, a, at an investment bank. And um, it made a huge difference as a buyer if I was speaking to someone that understood financial services. Um, you know, the, the, if you let's look at the jobs. The job of a salesperson is to navigate you through the purchasing process uh, of, of buying a product, which usually means that they're trying to calculate business value and, and to sell you a, a solution. And I think someone who understands the challenge, challenges that, that, for example, banks have, finds it easier to speak to someone who's trying to solve those challenges versus trying to cross verticals. And I think, you know, we're looking at that quite strongly now as we build out our go-to-market team, which is the, the, the characteristics we're trying to get is people who understand the challenges high-growth software companies have because they're entirely different to banks or pharma. Um, so yeah, I, th- I, think, I think on the, on the sales side, my personal experience is the, the vertical experience makes a really big difference. Mm. Um, whereas on the CS side, because you're now like executing on that value delivery and the business change, actually the, the experience of doing the job makes a really big difference. Yeah, that makes, makes complete sense. Yeah, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Um, this, is, this is good for us. Lots of good, interesting you know, insights. I think people have a you know, better grasp of you know, the value of, of, of having you know, strong uh, you know, customer success teams and the value back to net dollar retention. Um, I want to kind of shift gears here and move towards the, the last part of our interview and, and podcast today, which is the kind of more of the personal rapid fire question. So the fun part. Uh, so <laughs> you ready, ready, ready to rock on those ones? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Uh, so first question, what's one activity you enjoy outside of work uh, that gets you into flow state? Uh, I picked this up a year and a half ago, uh, and I've wanted to do it since I was a kid, uh, but I really like flying planes. Um, And so a fairly unique hobby, but... um, I uh, I find myself kind of wrapped up a lot in in work day to day, and for me, it's something I always wanted to do, and it's so abstract um, that it kind of really takes your mind off things. Like yeah. it's really difficult to worry about a work problem when you're five thousand feet in the sky behind a, um, you know the controls of an aircraft. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. That's awesome. Do you have your your license with that and your commercial flying license? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a I have a private pilot's license. I actually got it in uh, Miami uh, in in between lockdowns, mm. um, so which was an amazing experience. Uh, it's Florida is really really cool for flying because there's a lot more freedom. The weather's great, um, 
the British weather isn't exactly the 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 most popular thing when it comes to um when it when it comes to flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can I can imagine. Um what's what's one piece of advice you wish you had you wish you had would known and if you can go, go back would tell your 25-year-old self. Uh I'm going to use a career one. Um I uh when I was 25, I as I mentioned before, I worked for an investment bank um and uh we had I lived in Zurich at the time. Uh and in a city of 300,000 people in Zurich, the building that I worked in, in Credit Suisse, had 10,000 people inside it. Um, and I had always wanted to move into the tech startup arena, mm-hmm. yet I never could figure out how to do it and whether or not it was possible because I, I, I had this fear at the time that you can't move from a big company into a small company because you just don't have the skills to do it. And who wants someone that comes from a background of doing... IT operations at a, at a big investment bank. And I, the piece of advice I would go and give back is um, it, it doesn't matter kind of what, what environment you're coming from, you have, a val- you have value to go and add to a, to a tech startup. And that transition actually is something that is relatively straightforward to make as long as you have the desire to do it. Uh, and I would probably give myself a bit more confidence about doing it. Um, the transition I made actually was was very natural because I ended up moving into a tech startup or a scale-up that was focused on solving problems for IT operations people in banks. And I knew that space very well. Mm. Um, but I don't think at 25, I knew that nine years later, I'd be running a VC-backed startup in in central London um, be- because of that fear. Um, and obviously, now you kind of look at the market and and tech is absolutely booming. And uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I ultimately kind of figured out how to make that leap. So it's more like you know, follow, follow your desire and you know, trust in trust in yourself and have a little bit more confidence. And I guess you know, it also helps to, you know, shift kind of have that little bit of a of, of a leap and go into tech, right? Get in, get a job into tech, you know, just move into that space, and then you know, you can kind of figure out from there. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, in working in a big company as well, you can sometimes get wrapped up in like everyone else's view of the world. Yeah, sure. Which is, I was often told that it was the same. In every company, and like mm. tech companies have the same problems, um, uh, and I, I ultimately found that to be completely untrue uh, because they have a whole different set of problems. They're much harder. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's actually much harder to do your job when there's no bureaucracy because now the only limiter is yourself. Exactly. Um, you can't rely on the whereas at a bank to throw it on, right? <laughs> yeah, there's not ten thousand people in the building that you're in trying to go at the same resources. So. Um, so yeah, I think I think um, as well as the confidence, actually, just kind of as you say, getting the you know follow your desires. There's there's the other people around you might not want to do what you want to do. They might not have the same foresight to do it. Um, and absolutely, it's it's something that um, that uh, in hindsight, I'm I'm really glad that I took the jump at the time that I did. Nice. For us, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow Hook? Meaning, you know, what keeps you up at night these days? Um, I think the biggest challenge for us right now is building our go-to market. Um, year one, we started building last January uh, and um, we shipped our product towards the end of last year, started to gather our first few customers. Um, we're now kind of this year is around how do we build our go-to market, our sales, our marketing. Um, it's the first time for me that I've ever gone through that experience. So I've gone from year one, the first time I've ever built a product to year two, the first time I've ever had to build a team around it. Um, I think we're doing fairly well, um, but it but it's uh, it's definitely 
um, I think the thing keeping a few people up at night at the moment as we as we start to hire, as we start to to close deals and figuring out um, figuring out exactly how we're going to start to scale that. Mm. Yeah, one one recommendation there was to just checking out. Uh, I don't know if you know TK Cadder. He's got a lot of good content around uh, you know go to market when it comes to SaaS companies. So um, yeah, he's based out of awesome. Dallas. He's, he's also been on the podcast. So it's a great guy to check out. Um, yeah, awesome. I will. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, I guess speaking of, speaking of resources and you know people, uh, who or what are some of the best three resources? You know, this can be books, it can be mentors, or people you fall in the space who you'd say have been uh, most instrumental to your success over these you know last two, three, four, five years. Uh, I'm going to be slightly controversial on this, uh, and um, I, I've I've never been very academic. Uh, I uh, I never I, like I like understanding current affairs. I like understanding how businesses work. Uh, I like reading articles and so on around that. Um, but I really struggled with um, books uh, on it because I often found that business books end up kind of over-egging the same point in, in different ways. Um, I learned in two ways. Uh, I learned from some of the earliest managers in my career uh, and actually throughout my career. And what I learned from was uh, the times where they gave me opportunity to do things and I, I looked at like the way that they behaved and how I was inspired. And I also looked at the way that they behaved when I wasn't inspired. And, and I've always found that to be a really good way to, um, to learn and like to build, to build experience of doing things. So I, I, I'm much more of a believer of like, look at real life and, and how real life affects you and, and, and how people are able to achieve things than I am around kind of academic, um, stuff. And the, the, um, the second way that I, I like to learn is actually I like to get a lot of opinions from a lot of people. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're very um, gifted with Hook to have a, 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 a very nice range of angel investors and, and institutional investors where a lot of people have got a lot of experience from running different companies like um, MuleSoft, Onfido, Comply Advantage. Uh, and what's very helpful with those that type of experience is you, you can get a lot of direct hands-on experience about how to deal with hires, how to deal with difficult problems, um, and, and some of the most complex situations. And then you can kind of go and make your own mind up. Mm. Um, for me, that, that, that tends to be the thing that, that works. But yeah, I think if I was to name, you know, the most specific things, I would say it was like the early managers over my career that, mm. that gave me a chance and let me go and do stuff and then, and then rewarded me for it and, and gave me the confidence that I could do more stuff. It's interesting you mentioned two things that, uh, you know, help you and how you navigate your career and, and business, which is, you know, uh, behavior and opinion. And that's exactly what Hook is all about. It's like you're trying to understand now behavior and opinion of users, and then, you know, putting that into to, to like, you know, value for the world. So, I mean, that's your learning style and you're, you're giving that power to the world, right? So that's cool. Yeah, maybe that's been like my subtle influence. Yeah, yeah, of... yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd guarantee it. There's something, you know, deep subconsciously is like, this is what you need to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. Um, I feel like I need to go and get therapy on, on that. <laughs> we'll, have an, we'll have another session on that for another day. <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, so for us, um, you know, investment banking. You worked at a tech startup, raised millions of dollars now for your new startup, and as CEO and founder, and having good traction. Um, what does success mean to you today? Whether that's you know personally, business, financial life, there's, there's no right answer. Yeah, I for me. Right now, uh, I started Hook uh, as well as kind of stumbling across this massive problem that I felt was just not served in the right way. The other thing that I, uh, I have always loved is I've loved building great teams. Um, so I've loved building teams where 
Um, people are hardworking, they're ambitious, but they look out for each other and we give them opportunity and we develop them and, and, and we become friends. Um, my closest friends have always been people that, uh, that I've worked with. Um, I think it works really well on both sides because it means you work well with them. And when you've got a friendship, you have a lot in common as well. Sure. Um, and so the reason that I started Hook is I wanted to build a workplace for the best teams. Uh, I've done it for other companies. And I wanted to do it at a place where the buck stops with me. And therefore, I was empowered to be able to go and to go and build it in whatever way that I want. And so I think that is like the ultimate challenge that, that stays that like professional challenge. Um, so how do we, how do we continue to grow, grow and scale, build an amazing workplace, make sure that people are happy, make sure that people are working hard and getting the right challenges. Um, I think on a personal balance, uh, on a personal level, um, uh, the most important thing that I, I want to try and figure out probably is how do you find the right balance, um, between work and outside of work? Um, you know, as I think most listeners will, uh, will have experienced, uh, or know of um, the founder journey itself can be pretty all-consuming, uh, mm-hmm. and um, and that's something that I want to get better at. Which is how do I find a balance where there is a piece that's outside of work, and you can feel a little bit more at peace with work than than um, than being a founder naturally kind of allows you to do. Mm. Sounds like you're having a lot of fun and you know a lot of play in your in your starting and building your startup and you know building that workforce is kind of motivating to you uh, a good workplace. Um, just a quick question on that, you know, in the workplace, what for you? How do you, um, you know, structure that to to like what, what what for you is like an ideal workplace where you feel like you know you have like you know, the right people, the right setting? Is it the right environment? Is it all of the above? Like how how do you kind of see that? Yeah, good question. Um, for, for me the people is the first thing like how do you get people that are ambitious that want to work hard um and uh and that are intelligent and um and then how do you create an environment where they can do that and they're treated with respect and they treat everyone else with respect as well um i sometimes find that with workplaces you get one or the other so you can get the hard working fast moving but you kind of forget that everyone else is a human and you need mm. to treat them like that mm. um or you get places where they look after people but if you're the if you're the one that wants to move quicker, maybe everyone else doesn't want to move at the same speed as you. And that can be frustrating as well. Mm. Um, so I, I, those are the two things that we, that we tend to focus on. Um, uh, on the more superficial stuff, um, we've always believed in in-person working. Um, we're in the office. Uh, I think you can see people walking behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually ask people to come in two days a week, uh, but we find most people come in three or four days a week. And I think a lot of that is around like the social element of people being able to spend time with other people like themselves. And so when they've got a problem, they can walk out of the room and talk to someone about a coffee uh, and not feel isolated at home. And that, that was a huge, a huge driver of, um, of being able to hire. We, we actually use that by the way, as a differentiator. So um, we, we found with a lot of our early hires, people wanted commitment to knowing that an office will always be there. And it's something Mm -hmm. that we made available to people and told them they've got a key and can come in whenever they want. It's funny, eh? like at the beginning of COVID. I mean, we've been remote since like you know years ago. Since it's 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 normal for us. But you know, during COVID, it was like, is your do you, do you offer remote work? And that was the benefit. And now it's like the opposite. Like, do you have an office? Because like I want to be able to use it. Right? It's funny. How yeah, it, it was interesting. We we actually ended up getting a pretty good deal on our office space because of of like we we caught the shifts at the right time. So mm-hmm. we ended up getting an office when people were moving out of offices. We moved into lease premises when people were moving out of lease premises. Mm. Um, and so we moved into this space, which is kind of a, a beautiful um, brand new space right in the middle of, of Liverpool Street, a, 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 a fairly good deal. But yeah, we found um, 
since we moved in, we found that people come in on um, uh, like uh, Saturdays and Mondays because they were in town and they just had a couple of things that they wanted to finish off. And um, and that's been really nice to see. It's, it's nice that people feel like this can be their their place to like uh, get away from home almost. Because yeah, yeah, I think definitely. we all kind of went through the experience of being sat in COVID alone on your kitchen table or with your partner sitting two meters away from you. Mm. So um, yeah. Yeah, love it. Well, well, well. Good. Uh, I'm glad what you you know happy with what you guys are doing. You know, I'm rooting for you guys, and and you know, hope you guys do well with with Hook. Um, where, where can uh, you know founders, anybody listening in, get a t- get in touch with you, learn more about your about Hook, or, or just want to say hi? Yeah, um, uh, add me on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't think there's too many Farazes out there, so um, uh, search for me. Uh, add me. I'd love to help you out with anything that you're thinking about in terms of customer success. Um, for any founders that are um, in Europe. We're going to be at Sasta Europa um, on the 7th and 8th of June. Uh, so um, uh, come and hang out with us and, and reach out to me if you want to meet in person. Um, and uh, if you're interested in learning a bit more about what metrics uh, you should be using, if you go to hook.co, we've also got a report that we published. You can download it for free. You don't need to speak to a human to get access to it. Um, and you're more than welcome to have a look through that. We get really strong feedback from people about that being a a concise thing that they can learn from over 108 leaders that we surveyed around uh, what metrics work for customer success. Awesome. Awesome. This has been, this has been great. Really appreciate you being on the, the show today. Thanks. Thanks, Rashid. Awesome. Thanks yeah. a lot. All right. Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.